You're listening to highlights from the Creative Process interview with J.S. Broschot, Professor of Health Psychology on the Mechanisms of Stress in Daily Life at the University of Leiden. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I'm a professor of psychology specialized in the chronic stress response, the response that can actually make us sick and die earlier than we should. And a chronic stress response means a continuously high blood pressure, heart rate, stress hormone level, and so on. And 60 years of stress science have not yielded an explanation for these chronic stress responses. So it can't explain why, for example, lonely people show a chronic stress response while they experience hardly any stressful events. And why do people with a history of early life stress show a continued chronic stress response in their adult life? And the same question can be asked about discriminated minorities or living in an urbanized area without much green. Why do people in these situations fall sick earlier and die prematurely? So several years ago, my colleagues and I got a new insight that may help to explain these responses. It's based on neurobiology and evolutionary science. And this insight is that the stress response is not a response triggered by stressful events, but a default response that is always on, but normally inhibited when safety is perceived by the so-called prefrontal brain. In other words, it's all about being better safe than sorry. And it works like this already for millions of years of evolution. And so it's very automatic and unconscious. So we are often chronically stressed without being aware of it. Well, these insights led to a new theory that we called GUTS, the Generalized Unsafety Theory of Stress to which I currently dedicate nearly all of my working time. Safety is about needs that are important for survival. So social animals need to be connected. And thus lonely dogs, sheep, and so on show chronic stress responses and die earlier. But there are many other needs. Cats, for instance, need to hide. And many birds need washing opportunities. Pigs and wild boar need to root, and so on. And if these needs are not met, these animals remain stressed. Now, one of our most intriguing questions is, what are precisely our own concrete so-called non-negotiable needs? How many friends are enough to keep this default stress response down? Are social media of any help? Do we need touch? And so on. And what physical spaces do we exactly need? How much nature? Stress science should stop studying stressor, but focus on what we really need. Finally, from a broader perspective, this is not only health. Far before having these bodily consequences, lack of perceived safety reduces our general performance, our cognitive flexibility, our creativity and exploration, our mood and our libido. People who suffer less from pain if they are socially connected, they call it a social support buffer. But according to, to our model, our thinking, it's more like we are actually feeling safe. So the stress response is more inhibited and stress is really a strong enhancer, amplifier of bodily pain. So that's one possible uh, answer. And the other one is that, uh, yeah, I agree completely that, you know, our previous generations were not so much hunting for happiness, but you can broaden that idea. Nature, evolution is not about happiness at all. It's nothing even about negative or positive. These are just words, ideas that of us humans in our language, it's all about survival. And if you ask this simple, but actually very complicated question, do we need happiness for survival? You know, there is, there are these very handy things in our brain that make us enjoy things. And these things are very important for us. So like a food, a sex, but also the social you know, we really love to be among people. If you ask people, 
what what their top number one happiness factor is. It's always to do with, uh, and it's also the other way around. Those who get addicted to to drugs, there's not a lot of research into the hard drug users because you know you need tens of thousands of people and follow them for decades. But there is a growing research into prescribed opioids, so painkillers. Not surprisingly, those who get addicted, not everybody gets addicted. It's between like 3 or 20% of people, especially in America, it's a big problem. But it's still a minority. And why do all these other people not get addicted to these painkillers? Well, a very important factor is if you are well integrated into a social network, into the world, these literally, these receptors in your brain that these opioids work upon are already busy, are occupied. It's very important for animals, including men, to be safe. For us, social animals, the most important factor is to be connected, to know that other people around that you can trust. And we need a kind of space in which we are safe. We need to be able to look into a distance to see possible dangers. But we also need areas that can supply us with food and water and so forth. So as all these needs are sort of met, we will have more time and more literally more cognitive space to explore the world around us. And that's exactly what you see in animals also. The more safe they are, the less stressed they are, the more they start to explore the world around them. Animals have, a, in a way, a sort of kind of advantage. Animals don't worry, don't have the brain to uh, predict into the future or ruminate about the past. And that's what anthropologists call that the time machine. And it's estimated that was uh, developed in our ancestors like a half a million years ago or something like that. So animals, as long as there is no immediate threat and they are safe and if they are in their group, they graze and they do their thing and often in in herds of animals they have on the outside they have all animals that that watch out for the lion or whatever we can also try to live in the here and now and the interesting thing is that uh, that mindfulness and other similar kind of meditations their popularity has grown so much it, it has kept at the same page pace i would say as the globalization of the world in a way we try to teach ourselves, train ourselves in doing exactly the opposite of worrying and rumination, which is what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is, and other types of meditation, are trying to get back into a state that animals find themselves in very often. I'm also typical for many psychologists, a little bit neurotic and I worry a lot. So we taught ourselves to deal with this by getting control over your worrying. And you can do that by... postponing worry, for instance. I mean, we find ourselves the whole day worrying about things, but you don't need to worry about these problems at every moment of the day. So a very simple trick is to tell yourself, I'm allowed to worry half an hour later this day. We have done that kind of research with literally thousands of students in many groups. And we always found that it helped not only to bring worry down, also worry duration, the number of minutes that people worry during the day, but also decrease their health problems, their complaints also. So it's very simple. It's part of a, a therapy, a, an official therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy for people who really suffer on a clinical level, the generalized anxiety disorder. But we took out that particular simple element of worry postponement. And that's what I regularly do myself. If you are chronically stressed and your autonomic nervous system is too active, and these hormones like cortisol are somewhat higher. What basically happens is all these things that you really need during stress response, if you are fighting or fleeing from a predator, from a lion, it's very important 
that all other activity in your body is stopped. So your digestion is stopped, your growth hormone, everything is stopped because you need all the energy and all the materials for, to get away from that lion. But that shouldn't take more than like, let's say an hour or something. If it takes longer, if it takes a day or days, then it starts to take its toll. If your immune response is suppressed for a couple of days, you get sick because your body cannot defend itself anymore against illness disease. Your cortisol, for instance, which is the hormone that starts to damage its own control center in your brain with the result that the next time you're even more and longer stressed than before. So how do we build that resilience? There are some groups like you could look to the military or the Shaolin monks or to others who extreme sports and they're able to build a resilience with them where they can tap into something deep in themselves and they can really undergo a lot of stress, but they're able to focus on their vitals, on fulfilling the mission, on working collectively. If you train yourself also with the mindfulness meditation or another meditation, you automatize certain ways of thinking. That's extremely important because it's, if you automatize things, cognitive processes, you don't have to think about them. It's just like uh, learning to play the piano or learning to bike. It works exactly in the same way. There are multiple studies showing that if you learn to meditate, you see the same things happening in their brains as when you learn to play the violin. Not in the same places in the brain, but it's a matter of training and training and training. And what we call resilience is in a way a trained performance of these monks. And, and the other thing is, uh, let's not forget, because we are, if you talk about uh, especially the military, what makes their resilience really great is that they have a, very often a very strong bond between them. That's also something that has to do with our evolution. Because it was extremely important that you could trust each other when you were hunting or fighting another or a predator or another tribe or whatever. So what you do is you undergo a very stressful time together and you survive and then the bond is for life. That's also extremely important. If I see kids of 10 years old in a school square, they are constantly touching each other. It's so important. We have to get them off their smartphones and so on. I don't know how, but I think that's very important. Yeah and deal with the real world and get real friends. And I would like to have young people in schools to be confronted more with nature. Go outside, see what it does to you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.